1: Welcome to episode 46 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast, and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you and downloading, for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena, and publishes them in detailed reports in the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. If you give as little as $1 a month, or even feel more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast, and also one year's membership to the ALPO. You can help us out by going to notebook. And you can also join the ALPO for as little as $14 a year. You can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy and you get the official ALPO Facebook page. And also this podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode of the podcast. In this edition, I just returned from the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference up in Big Bear, California, and I had a wonderful opportunity to speak to Bob Stevens. He is past treasurer of the RTMC, and he's also president and CFO of More Data Incorporated. It's an organization created to manage research grants from NASA and the NSF. He's also been an amateur astronomer for nearly four decades and is active in asteroid research and having determined over 700 asteroid light curves and with over 200 research papers, articles, and announcements to his name. He enjoys traveling the world to experience solar eclipses. His current tally is 16 with three annular eclipses, six partial solar eclipses, and 16 total lunar eclipses. He's been involved actively in numerous astronomical organizations including RTMC and the American Amateur uh, Society. Bob is also a recipient of a lot of astronomical awards. So here's my talk with Bob, I hope you enjoy it.
0: Hello, I'm uh, Bob Stevens, I've uh, been an amateur astronomer for mm, about 45 or so years got involved in this hobby because I was getting a a degree at Riverside Community College and it needed a science class. I had three choices, physics, chemistry, or astronomy. I remembered my high school experience about physics and chemistry, so I figured astronomy was the way to go. And I went to a, went to class, uh, dear professor, Robert uh, Dixon, recommended the class that we go to our local astronomical society for extra credit to the star parties and meetings. So I said, sure, I'll do that. And I went and I found out that a friend of mine from high school was a member of the club, Randy Wilcox. So he and I started going out on observing star parties, camping trips, all sorts of things, got involved in the club, uh, not too long after that, somebody tapped me in the shoulder and says, oh, you need to be president of this club. So, Isn't that the way it happens? Yes. <laughs> so I, I foolishly said yes and, and agreed to do that for a couple of years. And uh, meanwhile, and of course, you know, life gets in the way. I started out my career as being an accountant, started up my own business, got married. Um, astronomy activities waned a little bit in that time period. But I was always kind of interested in you know, research and the science ends of things. But I always stayed with working with the RTMC with Clifford Holmes, who led the RTMC throughout all of these years, and uh, he and I and a whole bunch of other people ran this for the longest time. Now, when did you get involved with the RTMC? Well, I went to my first one in 1974. And it began when? It began in 1969. Okay. Right. The first four years was held at Riverside Community College, and then they moved up to the dark uh, mountain site of Camp Isomata in San, in San Jacinto, that's the USC music campus. They held it there for two years before moving over to Camp Oaks in Big Bear, just that's, outside of Big that's Bear. That's where we are right now, that's and you're celebrating the 50th anniversary. Right, and I, I started working in organizing the conference in 75 and 76, and we've been here for the last 45 years. And you're, you're currently the past president? I am the, uh, of the RTMC, I'm the past treasurer. Okay. Cliff was the, um, when, when it was an activity of the Riverside Astronomical Society, he was the director of the RTMC. That goes up to 1989. Then the Riverside Astronomical Society spun it off as to into a separate entity, and he became the executive director of the RTMC. He was the first one up from 1989 to 1991. Then his health issues forced him to step down, and Steve Edberg became the executive director in
1: 1992. Yeah, this is like my 35th RTMC I've been to, and I have very fond memories of Cliff in the 90s. I used to bring my young children up here. and. Whenever he would see him, he'd always come and talk to him and say hi to him, and he really made him feel welcome. And that's, you know, he was an amazing guy. He was an
0: amazing guy, and you know, he had all sorts of great tricks. You know, his memory of all the people he had ever met in his lifetime was is no better than any of ours. Uh, But he would always just come up, shake your hand, and say, "Tell me your name again." (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that was just one of his catchphrases. And people would happily and gladly tell him. That's true. (laughs) I remember him doing that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: That's very cool. Uh, um, Now, I, I heard a story yesterday that his son actually got him involved with astronomy.
0: Yes. Travis was, I want to say, eight years old. And... For a Christmas gift, they gave him the, you know, the starter 60-millimeter refracting telescope on the lousy, shaky mount. And, you know, I think Travis was maybe allowed to use it just once, perhaps, and Cliff immediately shanghaied his telescope, and then eventually and very quickly, <laughs> you know, evolved into 8-inch uh, telescopes and then 10- and 12-inch telescopes and everything. In other words, the astronomy... Bug bit Cliff early and hard. (laughs) He was a Twinkie salesman, wasn't he? Clifford Holmes worked for Twinkies, (laughs) the local distributor in Riverside, delivering bread and things that you shouldn't be eating (laughs) to all sorts of stores around the Inland Empire. He actually drove the truck. He would unload the loaves of bread and Twinkies and everything. He would take the orders from the shop owners and would do this, you know... Five days a week, all day, and then at night he would observe, and would also oh often be out running outreach events. Before we called these things outreach events, he was going anywhere and everywhere to every public park that you can think of, and uh, and eventually, of course, you know, created the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference. He was heavily involved in the Western Amateur Astronomers for a time, right. um, and just was always outreach, outreach getting people together to talk about astronomy. He actually did some real research. He, uh, Him and David Dunham, David Dunham was uh, working for JPL at the time. He was organizing... Uh, what was called grazing occultations. Yeah, the IOTA organization? Yeah, right. Well, David formed IOTA in the mid-60s eventually. The idea was the moon passes in front of a star, if it just grazes along the limb, it passes in front of mountain peaks, or behind mountain peaks rather, and then you can see the starlight through valleys and things like that. And if you have a line of telescopes perpendicular to this path on projected onto the Earth, you can then trace out the limb of the moon in these mountains and valleys. And you go, well, well, why is that important? Well, two reasons. Um, We did not have a good idea as to what the limb of the moon looked like, first of all, and this was very useful information for this little program called Apollo that was (laughs) up and going at the time. I think I've heard of that. Because as it turns out, they were interested in knowing what the geography on the moon looked like. And as it also turns out, we didn't really have a super good idea of what the moon's orbit looked like, so... Um, this grazing occultations really helped refine the moon 's orbit so that they kind of knew when to turn the engines off on this spacecraft as they were coming into orbit yeah, interesting so the Riverside Astronomical society with under Cliff Holmes did about three dozen of these uh, and successfully saw it, well, probably about half the time you know without being clouded out and stuff and all this information was submitted to NASA and all that wow so so, yeah, Cliff loved the science side, too, and, and in particular, loved comets. That's like and, the first Pro-Am collaboration. Right. Yeah, and, and Cliff loved solar eclipses. He'd go to every one that he could get to. Fantastic, okay. fantastic. Now, he ran it... He, how long did he run the Cl- RTMC? Cliff ran it up till 1991 when he stepped down as executive director. Okay. And I'm, I'm working from memory, but I believe that to be accurate, okay. at least within a year. Okay. Um, and then he... he Cliff passed away in 1993, right. and Steve Holm, Steve Edberg, I'm sorry, um, had, ran it from I believe 1992 up till about a couple years ago as executive director. Now it's it's called the Riverside
1: Telescope Makers Conference. Okay. How did that focus come to be? Ah, okay.
0: Well, when it first started, it was just kind of the telescope conference, or that Riverside convention, or that West Coast convention, or whatever. It's hard to tell when the name actually gelled to become the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference, but not before 73 and probably not before 71 or '2. Now, it was called the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference, and of course we always shorten things up to become acronyms, Mm -hmm. which is not really an acronym, because an acronym you have to be able to pronounce. It's really just initials. (laughs) So it became the RTMC, and... It was the RTMC up until 1989 when it was spun off into a separate organization, at which point in time it became the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference, Inc. Okay. And then it was run, it was called the RTMC in the popular literature in elsewhere up until oh, about the year 2000 or so. And we are trying to expand the focus and, you know, because telescope making by then, with commercial enterprises coming along. You could buy a much better telescope, much cheaper than you could ever build it for. More people coming to the conference were interested in astronomy, what you do with it, astrophotography, all the things about astronomy. So we were trying to take the focus a little bit off of just telescope making because we kept going, oh, if I'm not into building telescopes, I don't need to go to that conference. So the name... Of uh, the conference itself officially became the RTMC Astronomy Expo, and that was used that way for many years. But I noticed that people kind of stopped using that name and it's just <laughs> back to the RTMC again. And most people don't even know what TCM stands for anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's <funny. laughs>
1: Now the attendance over the years, like the early years, what what? How many people would attend?
0: Well, in the early years, uh, the first one was 130 people. Then it got up. About, good for a first year conference. Yeah, got up to about 200, and finally 240 at the last one at RCC in 1972. When they moved up to the mountains in San Jacinto Mountains, it dropped down to about 200. Then they moved over to Big Bear, and it was 200 in Big Bear. That's when it first. That's when it really started taking off because. All throughout all these years, Sky and Telescope would write an article about it every year. Then Astronomy Magazine started writing articles about it in the mid- mid-80s. And then there was this other telescope called Telescope Making, a Magazine that was, you know, um, a subsidiary of one of those two. And so there was always like three articles a year. And so the population grew from 200 to 300 to 500 to 600. By the end of the 70s, it was up to 800 at the... Uh, early 80s, then it grew to 1,000, and eventually stabilized at around 1,500 throughout the 80s. Yeah, I, my first year was 77, and I went every year after that for quite a number of years, and just seeing it grow was amazing. Yeah, yeah then, then there was kind of a, a change. You know, vendors were starting to come in that period of time, and the the, the largest year was actually 1987. I believe Clyde Tombaugh was, was here, mm-hmm. and, and a couple of others. and And the numbers are a bit disputed, but it's either 24 or 2600. Whatever. What's undisputed was everybody agrees there's way too many people for a camp of, of this size. And so nobody was pushing to have the crowd be getting that great anymore. It, it once touched 2,000 again in the year 1990, but most years it was in the 16 to 1800 range, uh, which was fairly comfortable. Well, not really because there wasn't place enough to park all the cars mm-hmm. after a while.
1: Oh, I remember those yeah. days. Yeah, trying and to come if you if you showed up on Saturday, you couldn't you couldn't park.
0: Yeah, just uh, you know the line to get in at nine o'clock Friday morning was over a mile long, all the way to the pavement. Um, it, it was really an issue, in, in requiring a dozen people just to direct traffic. Um, nowadays is much more comfortable. Um, you know the population. I, I don't know the exact numbers these days, but um, it, it's dropped. You know, well under a thousand. As have all star parties. Right. Which is. You know, we could talk for hours about the evolution of amateur astronomy in in the country, in the world. What's happened? You know, the evolution of all hobbies. As a matter of fact, the effect of society, the effect of the internet, the effect of all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, diversification means that. The Super Bowl doesn't attract as many viewers anymore. American Idol doesn't attract as many viewers anymore. Well, there's very good reasons for it. (laughs) Cable cutting, you know, all this stuff is you know, all this stuff is affecting how events like this are put on, and what kind of events are are given to people. It's an interesting societal problem. Yeah, and how to
1: bring in younger people, that's one thing we're struggling with in the ALPO too, is like we started a podcast. This podcast to reach younger people, and it's working somewhat, you know, the numbers are still out there, but it seems to be working. I want to jump back to 1987, though. Uh, That was the biggest year. We also had Halley's Comet in that time period, and all the telescope vendors were pumping out telescopes to
0: supply and demand. You you look at membership numbers of uh, uh, astronomy organizations, they all peaked right after Halley's Comet. They all peaked right after Apollo, too, for the same reasons, and they all tailed off again. Uh, (laughs) So... Uh, it, it's interesting, you know what attracts attention, what gets attention, what gets captures people's imagination. Then the question is, how do you hold that? How attention? do you keep them? That's yes. true. Yeah, and over
1: the years, I've seen the evolution here of the people. But it's also, you know, I gave a talk yesterday, and I recognized like half of them. But last time I saw them twenty years ago, they all had brown and black hair. <laughs> now yeah. we've all got the gray hair going on. It's like it's. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I've you know I've talked to all the editors of Sky and Telescope and elsewhere about these issues and and what the things that they're trying to do and, and Sky and Telescope is at least really happy that they've maintained their subscription base where everybody else has really dropped down. Wow. Um, so you know they're they're pleased from that perspective but not pleased you know on on the relationship to to all of this throughout society. Um, so yeah, you know uh, these discussions go on everywhere about yeah, so yeah. what can what attracts a millennial? How do you get to them? How do you get their interest, you know, off the off the smartphone? and you know, away from the video game. How can you leverage all of that? Well, you've got to get onto the smartphone apparently in front of them. You know, something that you're trying. Um, you know, but you you know, they also gotta feel like they're contributing to something and something important. Um the citizen science movement is one of the growing movements out there, you know, and heavily involved in that. But uh um, you know, how do you After you get them involved, how do you keep them involved? Particularly when life catches up to them and they have families and things... Drag their attention away, um, and how do you do? You plant the seed and wait for them. When now they're, you know, the kids are in high school and they got time on their hands, or they become empty nesters and have a little bit of money, disposable income and stuff. You know, you know, how do you place yourself to be in the right place at the right time? It's a million dollar question, right yeah. there for,
1: for every hobby, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about vendors. The evolution yeah. of vendors. When did they start showing
0: up? the first vendors have been here from day 1 okay. but the first vendor that showed up to actually sell something was in 1978 i believe okay. might be off by a year okay. one one year on uh, either way it was celestron telescope they set up literally a banquet table a uh, looks to be a 10 foot banquet table out on the edge of the telescope field, because they had some seconds. What we mean by seconds is these were marred goods, uh, some, an eyepiece with a scratch on it, for instance, that they can't sell as new. Or they were stuff that was returned for whatever reason that they mm-hmm. cannot sell as new. So they needed to have a place to to sell this stuff. So they, so they got the bright idea, oh, let's just take it up and heavily discount and people come and buy this stuff. So they did, and... You know, like it took all of ten minutes, I right. think, and other vendors took note of this, go, "Oh, there's an idea <laughs> let's do that, you know, you know fifty percent is still better than nothing that's true, so uh, Mead and everybody else started doing it, and then they they started realizing we don't need to just sell seconds and use stuff; we can sell anything, so throughout the early eighties and so. The telescope manufacturers started bringing up, you know, brand new telescopes. Uh, Starlight instruments with their beautiful daubs would set up like, here's one of each. Let's Please come and use them at night, see what you can see. Um, Celestron Mead, here's our new line of telescopes. We'll have one of each out here. Please come use them at night. The CCD camera manufacturers started coming. Everybody started doing this as product demos, and they 'd find that the manu- that the magazine articles would actually write about them free publicity um, and it just kind of ballooned and this is this whole throughout all of the country throughout all of business this was really the rise of the era of the rise of the trade show when, you know. You could go the Anaheim Convention Center where we're, the RV manufacturers have rented out the whole thing. It's the same idea That's on true. a much larger scale. That's very true. true. you know, we didn't invent this. You know, Celestron didn't invent this. It all just kind of happened at the, the same time. Of yeah. The byproduct the, of the conference. Right. Yes. And then, and this was a time before the Internet, before you could buy stuff. So you, you mail order existed. You may buy stuff by manlord, order, but stuff was not heavily competing against each other on price. And they're not putting their factory seconds. I remember one year I I picked up
1: a brass 90-millimeter refractor from Mead for $150, and I'm like, it was all brass. Yeah. And Amazing. It had a little dent in the
0: do-cap. Do the The first C8, you know, was $1,200. My first C8, I want to remember... Uh, was uh, right around $2,000. And a C-8 today is well under 1000 mm-hmm. Price competition plus efficiencies in manufacturing and, and all sorts of reasons for that. You know, it brought telescopes to within the price point where people could afford them, but it, the competition also got very fierce. Um, so... It, I'm mentioning this because this has affected what the vendors can do. The vendors peaked about the year 2005, six or seven for us with elaborate vendor displays and everything. But I'm going to tell you, the vendors are losing money doing this. Mm-hmm. When Mead showed up with 20 employees in tow that they were paying overtime to, um, uh, maybe double time for holiday weekends. And when you looked at Mead's financial statements, because they were a public company, and yes, I That's did true. look. That's true. Mead was losing money. Celestron was losing money. Celestron tried to, tried to buy Mead at that time, and the FDA, said, not FDA, not the FCC stepped in and said, oh, no, you can't. Right. Um, so all these guys suddenly found that their marketing budgets were being slashed just due to sheer economic reasons. The Internet was starting to come along, and suddenly they didn't have the marketing budgets available anymore to go to trade shows. Plus, coming to a place up here in the mountains where it was an hour and a half, two-hour drive from the nearest airport and right. stuff like that, you know, these were yeah. all problematic things. You got to transport all the yeah. equipment up here yeah. and
1: machine.
0: Yeah, trade shows still occur, but now they're limited to two or three. Yeah, Nef is like the big one. Neef is the big, and I just got back from Neef, and it's fabulous. There's one down in Texas, And they go often to, like, the astro-imaging places, and they go to the astro-imaging workshops. There's one in the East Coast, one in the West Coast, Mm -hmm. because these are the people with money, honestly. If you are a top-notch astro-imager, you honestly, you have in your rig the price of a brand-new luxury car. And so In you, the mount alone. In the mount alone. <laughs> and maybe, you know, depending upon your luxury car of choice, it, you might have $100,000 yeah. in your rig. Easy. If you own an observatory, maybe more than that. These are people that can be marketed to that don't hesitate to spend $500 on something that will improve their efficiency and throughput. So the manufacturers now go to trade shows marketing to these people. They don't go to trade shows by and large anymore where somebody's looking for a $50 telrad or something like that or a $25 flashlight. Um, The sheer economics keep them away. And now the star parties are competing with all the national parks who want to put on star parties for their visitors, of course. It's a natural fit. Um... But, you know, you have your choice each and every summer of at least two, two dozen wonderful star parties that you can go to. But as a result, all of them have a, a lower attendance because you can only go to so many of them. That's, that's very true. Now, yeah. let's talk about telescopes. Okay.
1: The different types of telescopes you've seen over the years. Has there been an evolution of um,
0: telescopes? An evolution, Yes you know that the basic concept has been there since right. oh i don't know isaac newton yeah, right I understand <laughs> okay that. yeah but you know as to what you know when i first started in 1974 I would drool over the ads in the back of Sky and Telescope, and there would be, you know, the Unitron ads, and I knew I had to have that refractor somehow. Never got that refractor somehow. (laughs) Uh, The Questar ad, I would kill for a Questar. No, I never got a Questar. Um, uh, You know, Edmund Scientific was more what I could afford as a a young college student. So you know, I bought and assembled the telescope and put it on their two hundred dollar mount that I somehow scraped together the money for, and that was my first telescope, and then I built everything, because at the time, I could build a telescope for f- much better than I could buy for far less money, Right. so hence telescope making conference was really taken off at that point because they were teaching all the techniques and the things to look for and and well are you going to be into taking pictures are you into looking do you want a dobsonian light bucket in which case how do you build that how do you prove upon his original design or are you you know doing something different are you into planetary all these are issues eyepieces you know what eyepieces do you need so all of this was very important so people were really into building stuff. Now, over the course of about 20 years, and really 10 or 15 years, the manufacturers got caught up. They they developed their techniques. They got the price points down to where people could afford things. And um, now, from the mid-'80s on, you could buy a better telescope far cheaper than you could hope to build yourself. Yeah, but there's satisfaction in making it yourself,
1: too. Right. Yeah. It's comforting to see you give merit awards at the conference for um, home-built telescopes. Yeah. And it's comforting for me to see, after not being here for a few years, that you still have a lot of awards that you're yeah. giving away, and that telescopes are amazing.
0: Right. So the, the question is, what's important to you, yeah. the amateur astronomer? Is it the journey, or is it the destination? And if it's the destination, you're going to probably purchase a right. commercial telescope. If it's the journey, you might build it yourself, use it a couple times, and then start on the next telescope. <laughs> this, and that's what you see, because yeah. a lot of
1: times you'll see repeat people win the merit awards year after year, or they miss it, might miss it as they're working on their
0: new project. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Interesting. So, yes, I mean, people still build their own custom cars. Mm-hmm. People true. build their own custom airplanes from time to time. True. And that is what the hobby is for them. Other people want to drive places and fly places. <laughs> right. Very true. Yeah. Now,
1: the attendance this year is down. Um, how, why do you think that occurred?
0: Well, the attendance... Um, for the past several years and since i have not been involved in running it for the past 4 or 5 years okay. I'm only here in the second hand okay. but through the ni- uh the, through the mid 2000s the tenants was fairly stable at around 1700 give or take you know it might be 1600 or 1800 depends upon the phase of the moon we I always noted that a, a new moon would get you to an, an extra 200 people <laughs> Okay, so it's the people that want to come up here and observe, because it is a fairly dark sky sight. Yes. So along comes 2007. Most notable in the economic world as the official start of the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only thing that was going on in the the world that year. There was a whole bunch of other things. Um, Well, gas prices kind of were peaking about then. And up up through the year 2000s, you would... You would sometimes have to turn sideways to squeeze between all the giant RVs that were coming up here. That was the huge popular thing. People driving around these big, you know, 30-foot motorhomes or fifth wheels or whatever. Well, a lot of those people started thinking about that when gas prices hit four bucks a gallon. Um, Great recession. um, Issues in... uh, (laughs) You know, the internet is mm-hmm. quite possibly one of the most significant issues. Up till up till about then, y- you know, you came to conferences to acquire information, right. to you know, rub elbows with people, ask them how they're doing things, observe how they're doing things, go to workshops, go to TED talks and things like that. You know, bottom line, that was your primary source of information: listening to people and asking people. But it's also the friendships. Yes. I mean.
1: I, like I said, it's been years since I've been up here, and I'm walking around and I'm meeting people I knew years ago and striking up those friendships and yeah. conversations again, and now we're exchanging email addresses or, or Twitter
0: handles. Yeah, <laughs> the, the internet is caught up in that people usually by now, they don't have to wait till May to find out how to do something. They, they've they already learned how to do something off of a Google search or off of a website or a YouTube video. If you need to find out how to collimate the mirror on your telescope, there are 50 YouTube videos out there that will show you how. You do not need to attend a talk to find out how. Very true. So, you know, so all of these little motivations for coming to events like this are, are being ticked off one at a, one at a time. So... You know, but the most important singular one is the friendships, the people that you learn and you know and, and and got to meet over the years, and and sometimes this is the only time you actually get to see them once right. a year. So that's been the primary motivation of, of all the other little things that came along the way that still remains and will always remain because, you know, Internet sh- friendships are fine and well and good. Being Facebook friends with somebody is, is great and catching up and seeing what they're doing, but, you know, that, that only takes you so far. That's true. Okay. That's true. Um, so you've held it at
1: Camp Oaks for 25 years? Yeah. Okay. Well, no, uh, 45 years. 45 years yeah. at Camp Oaks. Okay. Um, so you're still going to carry on the Camp Oaks,
0: but something's changing with the date? Okay. I was told by the the board of directors, member of the Memberland board of directors, that Camp Oaks, who apparently is in a major remodel right now, okay. and just look around and see all the grading going on for laying out of new dorms and things There's like that. There's a cell that. tower out yeah. there now. There's a cell tower out there, yep. Looks like that, a tree. <laughs> that the Camp Oaks wants to use, they got a special event in mind on Memorial Day weekend, and and the Camp Oaks is owned by the YMCA of Greater Long Beach, of all people, okay. and has owned it since the, the late 50s when the camp was built. And they, it was built as a purpose for-purpose campground to service the underprivileged youth of the Greater Long Beach community. And they have, you know, all year long, kids come up for camps, and they say that it's not a, this is not a camping facility. This is where they come up and stay in the dorms, and every weekend, they, they, you know, they're sh- every week they're shuffling through a new group of kids all, all year long. Well, they apparently have some kind of event in line for Memorial Day weekend that they want to use it for. I'm, I'm not clear what it is, okay. but it's something important enough where they need the whole camp. So they, they informed the board of the RTMC that Memorial Day weekend is not going to be available to them in the future, but would, let, would like to make other arrangements for another time. So they've been talking about it, and, um, and they have, apparently they're, they're, they've arranged on a date in 2019 that's in the month of September. I heard the third weekend. Or- the third weekend of September. Now, the Memorial Day weekend, you know, it's pluses and minuses. Mm-hmm. With the exception of one experiment, since the 1970s, um, it's always been held on that weekend, come hell or high water. Full moon, new moon, doesn't matter Full moon. moon, new moon, blizzard, whatever, we're holding blizzards. it here. Yes, blizzards, <laughs> plural, <laughs> I've plural. Been here. Yes, yes, I've been here for a few. <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know... Uh, apparently, Labor Day weekend was not available for this. This, the, okay. I don't know whether to term it the grand experiment or the set in stone or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, Memorial Day weekend has had its plus and minuses. The weather is usually fairly pleasant, but you can always have the late storm. You're not yeah. going to have that in September. You're not going to have that in September. It is possible to get a storm blowing through in September. But it's really rare. Not like now. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's going to be a few pluses to holding it in September from that idea. And it'll be very interesting to see how, how this all works out. Okay.
1: Uh, a, you're not on the board anymore, no. but do you have any idea how they're going to handle
0: the change of date with people and press I and I don't know, and I don't know that they know okay. at this point in time. Obviously, this is a, going to be a, a big communication you know, uh, move for them. Back when I was involved, we still mailed stuff. There was this right. thing called the U.S. Mail and a first-class postage stamp, and we would mail out a, uh, a a a a printed piece of paper invite, basically. Actually, it was several pieces of paper. I think I got one this year. Yeah. <laughs> still. Yeah, you know, uh, explaining all the wonderful things that were going to happen to each and every person who attended in the prior four years. Okay. Okay? okay. And... Uh, but over time, that got kind of pricey right. <laughs> to do. And so they they went with Internet only, which is what most people are doing nowadays. Mm-hmm. And that has you know a, a good and bad effect to it. The good is it's very economical to do it. The bad is, you know, it's hard to get people's attention. On the other hand, I know what happens in my mailbox. Right. Between the mailbox and the back door is this blue bin called the recycle bin. And only one piece of paper out of ten actually makes it into my house anymore. So I'm not sure, even sure how effective first-class mailing would be in the future. Oh, okay. So speak to the people that have never been Okay. and tell them to come next year. All right. Well, to the people that have never been, this is your chance to rub elbows with some of the greatest amateur astronomers on the planet. I looked around this weekend and I saw, you know... Some of the household names that you read about each and every year. On stage last night was four amateur astronomers that between the four of them had discovered or co-discovered 49 comets. (laughs) Yes, four followed by a nine. That was David Levy, Gene Mueller, um, Alan Hale... And Thomas Malkos. Uh, Don, Don, John, Don Malkos. Don. And, you know, th- those four are worth the price of admission right there. And each and every one of them, you just walk up and strike a conversation, and they will take you by the elbow and walk you aside and, and talk your ear off. Yeah. You know. That, all of them are very, very approachable. And, yeah. Everybody up here is very approachable. In the, you know, we have the. Yeah, there's a stereotype of the typical nerdish type of person who's attracted to the sciences and and absolutely those people right. are out there um, but
1: um, you know we 're talking about you right yeah. no not, not not Bob, but you who's you're,
0: listening you listening to <laughs> the public we're talking about you, but you really have it in you to be a social animal when you 're paired up to be the next person with just like you. Suddenly you have all sorts of things of common interest and you strike up life, lifetime friendships. Yep. I have friendships going back 45 years from this club and organization and or other organizations I've been on. When I look at my Facebook friends, I notice that three-quarters of them are astronomy related. That's very true. Uh, so you know when you know when you think when you think in terms of oh you know I'm 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 shy I'm a shy person oh I can't do that I I don't make friends easily. Well, if you don't make friends easily, this is the place for you. Exactly the place for you where you come and do make friends easily, and it's amazing the number of friends you will walk away with from a single weekend.
1: Yeah. You don't have to be a telescope maker to attend? No, you don't. You don't have to bring a telescope. There are hundreds of telescopes. You could spend the entire night walking around the field looking through 16-inch Dobbs or
0: 7-inch Takahashi refractors, and they're all out there. I have not brought a telescope for decades myself. (laughs) I am perfectly content to walk from telescope to telescope and walk up and go, oh what are you looking at? Oh, it looks like your telescope happens to be pointed at the ring nebula up there in that general area of the sky. Is that what you're looking at? Right. You know, tell me, tell, me, tell me about your telescope, you know. Every single one of these people, you simply ask, what are you looking at? And they strike up a conversation, because they're proud of what they, and they want to tell you about their telescope and what they're looking at. They can't wait to share it with you, as a matter of fact. That, that, that's
1: very true, and you also have Recently, you've gotten into astro-imaging. Yes. Uh, You have a, I don't want to call it a competition, but you have something like that. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Okay. Um, Astro-imaging, I have not recently gotten into astro-imaging. I took my first astro-picture about mm, 48 hours after I identified with myself as an amateur astronomer. Now... A couple of those pictures I still have. Sadly, most of them will never be shown to the public again. Okay. <laughs> mine are on negative somewhere. <laughs> well, I have scanned mine, and some of them might make it in as a joke picture from time to time. But I got heavily involved in the imaging back in the fun days when we were cooking our film in ovens to try to get Uh. more performance. And then pressure cooking them in a mixture of hydrogen and nitrogen gas, and then freezing the film, and then, you know, developing negative slides as positives, you know, and vice versa. Any trick in the book, you know. Bottom line is, I got burnt out on all of that. Yeah. And I quickly became a visual observer to go look at variable stars for a few years. There <laughs> yeah. you go. So, nonetheless, then this magical product called a CCD camera came along, a charged coupled device. Just think of it as the chip that's in your smartphone that you're holding in your hand right now, a very advanced form of what we had back in the day. And I'm going, Oh, neat, look, professional astronomers are using this to do real work. And, oh, hey, we can do some really pretty pictures with this stuff. And this has grown, grown up to be the art form. And I emphasize the word art, A-R-T. Amateur astronomers are artists. If you're an, am- an astro immature, you are no different than the person who sits down with a canvas and paint and a brush. You are the Picasso of your age and you are interpreting what you see in the night sky and trying to explain it to the person you're showing as to what this object is and why you're interested in What attracted you to look at this object? And why should they be interested? You know, is it a field of lilies? Or is it a cloud of glowing hydrogen gas in the sky surrounding a a cluster of stars just being born? This is what you're trying to interpret and explain to your family, friends, and the public. So this has really caught on to be as quite the activity in recent years. And you can very easily, with a starter camera, and very and, and and simply no more than a tripod. Interpret this for the public. I'm holding in my hand a one-pound mirrorless camera that cost me six hundred dollars. I'm holding in my other hand a small tabletop tripod. And in both of these, I took pictures two nights ago of the stars circling around. The North Star Polaris, illustrating the rotation of the Earth and the star party that was going on underneath wow. this activity. It was very simple. Uh, uh, I could have done it with a cheaper camera. I just right. happen to you know use the camera I like, yeah. and you can do that too with very little skill and downloading a free program from the internet to stitch it all together into one image. It was a piece of cake. It literally took me 10 minutes to put the image together, and it was mostly sitting there watching the computer do it. Yeah, that's, that's the fun part, watching the computer yeah, be the artist. Right. Yeah. Now, obviously, you can get a lot more elaborate with that concept. But I like to chase solar eclipses, mm-hmm. which is you can take a picture with your smartphone. You can take a picture with your point-and-shoot camera. You can take a picture of video uh, you know, or you can use some very expensive rigs to do some sophisticated things, but you know what? they all look very pretty, and so you know recognition that most amateur astronomers like to do this at some level or another, um, we, uh, you know, and, and there 's been pictures all over the place, and you, and you see them it 's hard to avoid them these days. Mm-hmm. We decided to hold a little contest up here um, it 's our astroimaging contest and we started it oh about mm, 12 years or so ago and and the idea was, hey, everybody just bring a picture, and we'll divide it into about five categories. Here's our pictures of eclipses. Here's pictures of deep sky objects. Here's solar system objects like planets and things like that. You know, And here's your general category, which may be your, your nightscape objects, the moon rising over that bluff you know, or over the cactus or whatever out there, which is a very, very easy picture to take. So... People bring up pictures, they, 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 uh, then everybody comes by and votes on them, and we have a little contest, and it's all well and fun and, and so on. That's good. And there's also uh, an area set up for beginners, the yes. Beginner's Corner. We found that, that to be very popular. It was actually started about 20 years ago. And the problem is, of course, all of this seems very intimidating to people Mm -hmm. who've not seen any of this before. You know, all these decisions made, and and if you make a mistake, it could be a wrong, you know, it could be an expensive wrong decision, and so on and so forth. So, we uh, organize what's called the beginners' corner. The camp up here has the big main meeting room, and it has a small annex off to the side. And then there's a whole other building that's got you know this lobby area and, and a meeting room that can hold about 100 or so people. So we decided to hold the Beginner's Corners in there with a parallel program aimed at just beginners. Okay, here's a 45-minute talk on how, to, on how to pick a telescope. Here's a 45-minute talk on how to pick eyepieces. Here's a 45-minute talk on how to pick a camera for astrophotography, if you so desire. These are pretty well attended. I poked my head in there, and there was easily 30 people attending the classroom, the uh, the talk on how to pick eyepieces. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, which, you know, was about a quarter of the people attending whatever talk was going on in the main <laughs> <the> meeting hall. <laughs> wow. So it is very popular stuff. And yeah, you could just spend you could spend the whole conference just attending the beginners quarter. And then you know, we take a break, and Ken Gron he says, okay, let's go do the solar system walk, where we, you know, the, the typical, we, we've we laid out the, the planets to scale, and we're going to walk from Mercury to Venus to the Earth, and, and on, and we're going to talk, and he's going to talk about all the planets, so he's going to explain the solar system, and if you go out, brought your kids up, they may get a better idea of how the solar system laid out, than they do in their science class in, in the fourth grade, Good point. thanks to Ken's, you know, activity there, and then Ken comes out at night and says, okay, everybody, we're going to gather over here at the chapel where we have some nice seating here and it's away from the crowd and I'm going to get my laser pointer out. And I'm going to give you a constellation walk. I'm going to show you, here's the Big Dipper. Here's the constellation of Hercules. Here's the constellation of Cygnus. Here's where all the good objects are. So on and forth, so forth. Let's talk a little bit about mythology. Oh, this this Star Vega up here. Well, remember the Jodie Foster film Contact? That's where she flew. You know, all that sort of stuff. So we, you know, if you're wanting to get into the hobby... Again, this is the place to come. <laughs> and this is also a good family location because it is a youth camp.
1: Yes. And it's in Big Bear. Right. So there, there's, there's things, if you have a spouse that's not into astronomy, there's lots of shopping, lots of nice restaurants in well, town. Yeah. But there's,
0: there's, there, well, there's well, a swimming you? pool here. There's hang, all sorts of things. Hang on to the credit card. Don't let her walk out the door with the credit <laughs> card. You may regret that decision. But for the kids, there's a zip line that goes... To it starts on the island on the lake and then goes, you know, off. There's a climbing wall, there's an archery place, we can, uh, kayaks, kayaks. Yeah, there's kayaks out on the lake. Sadly, got a report the horses are gone. That's you very can sad. no longer do horseback riding. I'm, but, friend,
1: I'm friends with Scott and Sherry who yeah. used to
0: run the, yeah, yeah. the horses. And, but you can do mountain biking, yeah. you can do hiking, yeah, you can, you know. There's just no end of things that a family activity. This is a very this is actually cheaper than paying to go to a public campground at a national park. The registration fees to bring your family here are cheaper than going just, to a national that's true. park. That's true. And you will have a whole lot more fun and activity. And
1: there there's food available here and everything is yes. reason. I got a spaghetti dinner last night yeah. for eight dollars. Eight dollars. I mean it was yes. it was really good. Uh-huh. But I just thought of a, another advantage for having it held in September. The traffic. Yes. It took me four hours to get here. I'm 150 miles away.
0: Ah, uh, yes.
1: It took me 100 uh, four hours. And on September, it's not a holiday weekend. Yeah. It's an easier drive coming up the hill. So exactly. That's Yeah, I
0: guess, that, that might make, get me up since, since I was running it for so often, I was usually coming up on Thursday ah. before. So I never got to see that and appreciate it. But... You know, I do. I am fully aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's another one. Well,
1: I wish RCMC a lot of luck in the future. Uh, what can you tell us about
0: what you're working on now outside of the organization? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you a brief commercial because I'm sure that you're going to want to save this for a new, a, a new and different, you know, totally for now, some, for something completely different okay. broadcast. I have. You know, I mentioned the fact that, you know, I I always enjoyed the science and things. And after I got burnt out on astrophotography for the first time, (laughs) um, I got into the science, AAVSO, looking at variable stars, and, you know, did a number of different things along the way. But I got, I fell in with a bad crowd of astronomers, they're they're the planetary scientists. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Ah, yes, (laughs) you know, those guys, they they run in bad circles, and they they drug me in, kicking and screaming. I now work on asteroids, on characterizing the physical properties of asteroids, Uh, you know, of what's going on out there, how fast they rotate, what are they shaped like, do they have moons and things. I've discovered some asteroids along the way um, and and had all sorts of great times, you know, rubbing elbows with the professional community, going to their conferences, giving talks and stuff, knowing that I'm the dumbest person in the room. You know, it takes, you know, I've never appreciated... The fact that I can just go up there, knowing I'm the dumbest per- person in the room, and talk out loud. Yeah. But I've realized, looking back upon my youth, I used to do that when I was a teenager, when I told my first boss that no, I wasn't going to put flyers on the windshield wipers of the cars in <laughs> the driving in the parking lot because I hated it when people did that to me. And he nodded his head and says, Okay, I see your point. (laughs) So I I guess I was always like this, I never understood it. But nonetheless, you and I have a built-in advantage to these professional astronomers in that we don't have to go begging for money. That's true. Okay. They They want want our data. The professional astronomer literally spends sixty or more percent of his time, or her time, let me put that her in there, very important, begging for money. And realistically, only 10% of their time actually doing the work. Right. We get to do the work, and we get the accolades. That's true. So, if you ever want to talk to me about how how this is done, and can the amateur astronomer do it, and will the data actually be appreciated and wanted, the answer is absolutely yes, yes, and yes. Fantastic. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. All righty. And you and I will see each other again in three weeks at one of these conferences that I just described. S-A-S. (laughs) All right. We'll see you there. Okay.
1: well that'll do it for this episode of the observers no Pick podcast i really want to thank bob stevens for coming on again to be our special guest and talk about rtmc this is a conference that i think if you're in the area or even if you want to travel out to southern california and enjoy uh the high desert the high mountains of uh, san bernardino county and go to big bear it's a beautiful site uh come on up uh, september 2019 and enjoy the riverside telescope makers conference we upload a new episode of the podcast every few weeks you can subscribe to us on itunes if you do please rate and review us i really appreciate it you can now listen on iheart radio soundcloud spreaker google play stitcher and amazon echo you can support the podcast by donating to it via patreon If you give up to $35 a month, you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I really want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Sidentop, for his generous continued support of The Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. A link for Patreon as well as a link for the ALPO is in the show notes. If you'd like to drop me a line... You can email me at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at observersnbpod. If you want to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. Yeah, that's right, 14 bucks a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy, and also you can find the Facebook page of the podcast. Just search for Observer's Notebook. Until next time. My hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.